This is Innovating a Bright Future. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Avery Kreiwold, and this is the show where I walk you through the innovative and revolutionary technologies driving climate action and laying the foundation for a sustainable future. Here we are at the end of the story, with a lot to learn from the country that we've been delving into for the last four episodes. We've gone over how the country got to its point as a global leader in sustainability, and we've gone over the technologies that have been imperative to Iceland's success. This final episode will look forward. What is Iceland like now? Does everyone in Iceland have the same opinions on the importance of sustainability in the modern day? All of these are questions that the rest of the world can learn a lot from just by looking at the success of Iceland. And that's what we will hopefully figure out from this final episode. I sincerely hope you enjoy. Now before we really start delving into modern Icelandic society, I think we first have to recognize the difficulty and obstacles that made getting to this point in Icelandic and global history so difficult. Though I hope I haven't made this story sound easy, I think it's worth noting one more time how especially difficult it was to do what Iceland did. Functionally, the deck was stacked against them. Yes, it's true that Iceland is home to a variety of natural energy sources that are scarcely found in such density around the world, but there is so much more to a successful energy transition than just that. I mean, you don't have to look very far to prove this. There are plenty of places around the world right now that have more than adequate access to renewable energy sources, and there is still a prominent underutilization of renewable energy and a concerning dependence on fossil fuels. My home province of Alberta, Canada, has some of the most reliable solar and wind resources in the country, but you wouldn't know it by looking at our energy mix, as the vast majority still comes from fossil fuels. Just like anywhere else in the world, there are uncountable other factors involved in an energy transition of this scale. Costs didn't magically go away, politics still happened, and it wasn't automatically an easy process just because they had a place to put their energy facilities. So the question becomes why? Why did it work? What gave Iceland the drive as an entire nation to pursue such lofty goals? Well, as we've already discussed in this season a couple of times, in this case, the money was on the renewables side. The first energy transition in Iceland away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy was because it was cheaper. That was the whole point. That motivation was huge for moving the country towards a renewable grid, but it wasn't a quick fix. So what made Icelanders sure that this was the right path? Well, Grimir had a theory that I quite enjoyed, so I'll let him explain. Uh, I should say that this nation has a very strong tradition of fishermen going to the ocean and finding fish. So maybe the, the mentality is that we are willing to go hunting because sometimes you were not going to hunt anything. But in other fishing trips, you will get a lot of fish. So, so the mentality of fishermen is maybe also allowing us to make bigger risks and the, and the hope for a big reward. And this is not an isolated or even unique perspective on the matter. There is even a saying for this kind of thinking that has become somewhat of a slogan in Iceland, called Theta Redust. It's a common saying in Iceland that loosely translates to all will work out in the end. 
and speaks volumes of the Icelandic culture. This perspective has carried Icelanders through trying times, from the time of the Vikings huddle on the brand new rocky island, all the way through to the energy transition, which required more than a little optimism to get through. Alongside this unique cultural attribute that Grimmjörg credits for some of Iceland's success, were powerful policies, economic, political, regulatory, and community-driven that led the country to success. The one thing that almost everyone I've spoken to about Iceland has said is that the involvement of the citizens of Iceland fueled the country's success. As with any major change in the functioning of a society, the introduction of renewable sources in Iceland and a quick and seemingly chaotic shift away from fossil fuels was not universally and immediately accepted by those in the country. There were, of course, dissenters and those with varying levels of objection to any kind of change. Being open, direct, and honest with their constituents about the processes involved in shifting away from fossil fuels, and even more importantly, why they were going to do so, would become instrumental in the Iceland story. Once the public was made aware of the costliness of importing fossil fuels, which was not difficult to impress upon them, and the public became much more aware of the vast potential that renewable energy held as an alternative, the pitch became much easier. And at this point, I'm going to take a 30-second detour because to me, this is one of, if not the most challenging barrier to climate action and renewable energy implementation across the world today. Politics at every level, including the international stage, have muddled the issue of climate change so much and transformed it into a political talking point that has become so warped and misinformed that it only exhausts and confuses the public. The existence, extent, causes, and impacts of climate change are not political. They are objective facts. The solutions to climate change are political, but for those solutions to be as effective as possible, the focus must remain on preventing climate change as quickly as possible as the number one priority. And one more time, this is why climate conversations and climate awareness is the first step in preventing climate change. From awareness comes education, and from education comes not only action, but informed and effective action. This was the most prominent and close to, if not the most important success for Iceland. Not only was the government very aware of the toll that imported fossil fuels were taking on the economy, so was the public, and the unification of the two under one purpose, to reduce the cost of energy by switching to local renewable energy, was what really made the transition so quick and effective. The second key attribute of Iceland throughout their energy transition was the prominent role of government, not only in engaging the public with the transition, but leading the charge. Once again, this is something that is sorely lacking today in the global climate crisis for a variety of reasons. Whether it's based in dependence on uninformed or poorly motivated voters, or because of heavy lobbying and political power held by fossil fuel corporations, governments have been held back from effectively taking action and leading the charge on climate change. This is often justified by attributing meaningful change to corporations who will make change happen for the sake of good and profit. But the reality is, so far, that has gotten us nowhere. This is not to be misconstrued with complete inaction, but compared to the support that Iceland gave to its energy transition, it simply isn't enough, especially since the scale is so much bigger. In Iceland, the government set up extensive long-term planning committees that were designed to account for the needs of everyone in Iceland. 
The government also set up extensive legal and regulatory frameworks ahead of time and put in the effort to maintain the institutions essential to renewable success. Funding was made available and accessible for long-term and large-scale projects, and funds were established for the explicit purposes of protecting the interests of those willing to take on costly renewable projects. This created a huge incentive for companies to take action by drastically reducing the risk involved. Today, the world has changed, and the question faced by Iceland is no longer a choice between a renewable transition or not, but how the nation of Iceland can further lead in the fight against climate change, because lead they do. When it comes to sustainability, climate action, and the future of technology, society, and culture in a world where our future is at risk, it's difficult to find a nation more ahead of the curve than Iceland. In Iceland, it's more a question of how fast will we do it and who will pay for it. I, I would say the debate is more around those levels. I'm quite deep into this sector, so maybe I'm in an echo chamber of sorts. <laughs> like, but it's, uh, it seems to me that, I, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say most people uh, understand that this is not just a problem that we need to solve. It's also an area where we could have a competitive advantage in the future. Because we've already decided to do to make a green transition. We have the very unique circumstances of being able to do it very fast. We have a highly educated population. Icelanders generally take to new technologies incredibly fast. Having a new way of thinking and doing, it could be implemented here extremely fast. And if we manage to do that, we would have a competitive advantage. That is Kama Thordarsson. You've heard me shout her out at the end of every Iceland episode so far, because she is the reason that this episode of the podcast could happen. Kama has been the biggest help in organizing the season, providing me with information, connections, and resources that help me to understand the story of Iceland, as well as what it means for the rest of the world. I cannot thank her enough for being a part of this season and this show as a whole. Kema is the project manager of Green by Iceland, which is a platform designed to speak for the Icelandic people on matters of sustainability, green technology, and renewable energy, spreading awareness of Iceland's successes, and providing avenues for international sustainable development. Let's hear a bit more about Kema. Uh, my name is Kama Tortarsson, and I'm, as you said, the project manager of Green by Iceland, but my background is actually very international. So I grew up in England as a child. Then I moved to Iceland when I was eight. I went as an exchange student to Hong Kong. I then moved to China to teach English, after which I moved back to Hong Kong to study Chinese, realizing that nobody could actually speak to me in China. And I had no Chinese friends except the other English teachers. So after that, I headed to France. I studied at Sciences Po Paris, which is a political sciences school where I uh, focused on Europe-Asia affairs. And then I did an internship at the United Nations in New York, where I was a journalist writing on the developing world. At that point in my life, I really wanted to focus on human rights. But I spent a full year there with incredible access and could follow any meeting I wanted to. And I realized that there are no human rights without access to energy. And you really need renewable energy rather than fossil fuel-based energy, in order to make the world sustainable. So I switched my focus and 
decided to focus on international energy for my master's and then journalism. I moved home to Iceland when I had kids, <laughs> which very many Icelandic people do. And at that moment, I started working in tourism and joined the business Iceland team with like a tourism and attracting foreign talent focus. But then three years ago, they started the Green by Iceland project, which focuses on uh, promoting green solutions and renewable energy expertise from Iceland. And they called me because I was on maternity leave at the time and said, Kama, I think we created your dream job. Do you want to come? <laughs> when I applied for college, I wrote in my application that this is what I wanted to do. And now I'm doing it. <laughs> Kama is going to be a frequent guest for this episode, as we talked mostly about the current state of Iceland in relation to sustainability and renewable energy, as well as what the future might look like. So thank you again, Kama, for making this happen and being an important part of the show. As Kama pointed out, Iceland has already made their transition. They've already done the hardest part, coming together over this monumental goal and actually following it through to the end. And there's a lot that the rest of the world can learn from that today. But where does that put Iceland? Now that Iceland has done the hard part, and we now live in a world where sustainability is at the forefront of basically everything, sustainability has in turn come to the forefront of Icelandic culture. To be clear, when I say that sustainability has come to the forefront, I mean that Icelanders today are capitalizing on their reputation as an environmental leader the world over, and are using that momentum to not only propel themselves, but other nations and other people toward a sustainable future. In reality, sustainability has been an integral part of Icelandic culture since the very beginning. We've told the story of Iceland, and you've heard it. For much of their existence, Icelanders were forced to cooperate with the natural world around them, and to trade instead of exploit their natural resources. This isn't unique, of course. In the establishment of any nation, cooperation with the land is absolutely necessary to some extent, otherwise you just won't last long. We can say that the colonization of the Americas required cooperation with nature, but not nearly to the same extent. Colonizers already had agricultural methods that were exploitative rather than cooperative, and used more modern machines and technology to beat nature into submission to man than actually work with nature in a mutually beneficial way. The broad disregard for more sustainable practices held by the indigenous people of the Americas are something we touched on briefly in the climate justice bonus, and it goes to show the difference between the two methods of creating a new society. There are obviously many factors that went into that discrepancy. For one, there was much more technology available at the time of the colonization of the Americas, the biggest difference is in how Icelanders' approach to nature has changed over time. And contrary to the development of the Americas, nature has remained an integral part of Icelandic society well into the modern age. While not the only reason, the fact that Iceland was an island nation and largely isolated from the rest of the globe definitely contributed to the tendency to care. And what I mean by a tendency to care is that kind of consciousness that goes into every decision, to account for not only how each decision affects you, but also how it affects the you of tomorrow, and your neighbors, and your neighbors tomorrow, and your children, and the environment around you. I think it's definitely a point of pride in Iceland to, to be sustainable and also to have 100% renewable energy for electricity and house heating, because that's 
quite unique and impressive, <laughs> I would say. I actually think that the foundation of this thinking that we call sustainability today in Iceland is based on the limited resources that we had. Because as an island nation, you you have to make do with the resources you have. And uh, I think that's very linked to sustainability because sustainability is all about making the most of your resources. Like it's like the mindset of so, of a of a poor nation. Like we used to be, you wouldn't throw anything away. You would always try to use it to its fullest extent. And that's the mindset that we've incorporated extremely well into our uh, fishing sector. You have people drying fish skins to use them as leather. You have drying fish heads with geothermal and then shipping them to Nigeria, where people will eat them, where they're a protein source in soups. You just have this way of thinking that you're not just going to use the fish itself. You're going to use every single part of it. Uh, you won't throw anything away unless you like really have to. And then we did the this exact same thing, really, with uh, geothermal. We're you know, using it to make electricity. Then we're using the water for house heating. And then even greenhouses and fish farming, algae cultivation. Even like after all of this, you can send it out, you know, to melt snow or to make some soil just hot enough for something to grow in it. Today, it's called the circular economy, the circular economy mindset. But that's that's not a very famous phrase in Iceland. It's very much the way we've been doing things in certain sectors for a really long time. Icelanders have a very deep connection with nature. I think it comes from how close we are to nature. You're never far away from nature in Iceland. In the capital city, you can usually see the sea and the mountain. And if you drive for an hour or two out of the city, you're just in, in nature, like the type of nature that you see on postcards. It's simply incredible and it's so close. In Iceland, we have very long summer holidays. And uh, traditionally, and this is until my, my dad still did this, children would go back to the farms to do some farm work during the summer and then come back to school. Anyone who's spending two or three months a year in, as a child in the countryside is going to know nature much better than someone who is usually in the city. Living in a, a country like Iceland, where the forces of nature are, are so visible, you know, they are such a big part of, of your everyday existence. We witness, you know, volcanic eruptions regularly, earthquakes are, are quite common. We tend to look at them like sporting events, you know, when there is an earthquake, everyone goes online to check how big it was how dependent we are on the weather it means that it's very grown into everyone in this country to be interested in natural history you know in natural science and weather reports in in in, in icelandic media are much more scientific you know and detailed we we know all the big terms and the the, the major science behind it so I think that this means this this uh, high interest and natural uh, history translates, you know, into people being 
open to, you know, going into this field. There's no escaping the power and beauty of our world. It surrounds the people of Iceland every day, and it makes it easy to love and care for the world. As Stefan said, Icelanders may not be dependent on the harvest and the fish to last through the winter anymore, and fewer school children will work the land over the summer, but that tendency to care has never left because of the connection to nature. And as Icelandic society developed, that care for nature has evolved in the modern day. It has transformed into whole new realms of opportunity and success for Iceland, both in the environmental movement and outside of it. As has been remarked many times over the course of this season, Icelanders are beyond proud of their national renewable energy status. It's ingrained in national pride, and as such, has only built their momentum in the field of sustainability and climate action. Proud but not satisfied with their international reputation, Iceland has continued iterating in sustainability, searching for more ways to reduce their impact on the world and continuing the transition of setting long-term goals to guide the country towards success. Iceland has released both an energy policy up to 2050 from the Minister for Energy and a climate action plan up to 2030 from the Ministry of the Environment and Natural Resources, both of which I want to sum up quickly now to give you an idea of Iceland's climate trajectory in the near future. The Climate Action Plan acknowledges the first success of Iceland in mitigating emissions from energy production, as well as the importance of continuing work in the other fields to mitigate the variety of other sources of emissions. In this plan, which was established in 2018, Iceland set the goal of reducing GHG emissions by 40% compared to 1990 levels by the year 2030. But, that pledge has actually increased since then with Iceland setting the goal to reduce emissions by 55% by 2030, be carbon neutral by 2040, and remove all fossil fuel use from the entire country by the year 2050. Those goals, to start, are absolutely monumental. For context, Canada's goal is 40% reduction by 2030, and that is in comparison to 2005 levels, which are significantly higher than 1990. And, keep in mind that Canada is pretty ambitious in their goals compared to other countries around the world. Though, I guess that kind of makes sense. Don't forget, my fellow Canadians, we are still in the top 10 countries in the world for per capita emissions. Not a great look. The two main facets that the climate plan sets out to address are emissions from transportation, which is one of the few remaining sectors in Iceland that contributes a significant amount of emissions, as well as reducing emissions from land use and land change. On top of that, there's a couple pieces about implementing natural strategies for carbon sequestration in the country. Some of the strategies involved in phasing out fossil fuels in transportation involve disincentivizing fossil fuel vehicles by providing more funding and support for public transit and bicycles, especially in Reykjavik. It also means more infrastructure to support electric vehicles as well as taxes and tax incentives that discourage gas cars and encourage electric vehicle adoption respectively. This includes an outright ban on registering new fossil fuel powered cars after the year 2030, which is a very bold move. You absolutely love to see it. This part of the plan also promises to eliminate fossil fuel vehicles for government fleets, which is another example of their government leading the charge on climate action. 
This also includes establishing an electric ferry to the Westman Islands near the mainland and adding significant considerations for electric ferries in the future. It's not a promise of no more fossil fuel powered ferries in Iceland, but I would be pretty surprised if they went and commissioned a new fossil fuel ferry after making it clear that they have strong intentions to move away from such actions. In terms of natural solutions, this is something we haven't actually talked about a ton yet, at least this season. So let me explain really quickly what these kinds of climate solutions look like. See, as much as Icelanders have spent much of their history learning from and adapting to their environment, there were a few moments that have caused pretty permanent damage to the country's ecosystems. For a start, one of the reasons that Iceland ended up in such a resource-scarce environment for much of its existence was due to some of the first settlers harvesting the majority of trees on the island and not taking any action to ensure they came back. Centuries later, before the impact of such actions were known on a broader scale, Iceland drained many of its wetlands for industrialization and development. Today, we know that wetlands are a significant carbon sink and can not only aid in sequestering carbon, but actually release GHGs when drained because of all the decomposing organic matter present that is now open to the air. As such, and similar to many places around the world, reforestation and wetland restoration are some of the primary methods of climate action through natural mediums. Although reforestation is a long process and will have greater impacts farther down the timeline, getting a start on it now is not a bad idea. This is especially true considering that Iceland has already tackled the biggest contributors to climate change and can afford to look for more nuanced and long-term solutions that both reduce GHGs and contribute to a healthier natural ecosystem. As for wetland restoration, its effect can come on significantly faster by reducing current emissions, although there is some conflict in the scientific community whether wetlands are a net positive or negative for climate in general. This is because microbes present in wetland ecosystems can actually produce methane, which is a prominent driver of climate change, and if the drained wetland is already dry and no longer decomposing at a fast rate, it may actually release more emissions when filled up again than if it was left dry. Apart from these main two tenets introduced in the plan, Iceland also has policies laid out to support education on climate and its impacts. This includes programs for the public, government bodies, and youth in schools. As one of the global leaders in carbon sequestration technologies, and soon to be a prominent figure in natural methods as well, Iceland is becoming more involved in the carbon trading market, which we've discussed on the show before. While not universally a positive thing, since it will be a government-regulated program, it's much easier to have faith in than some of the other actors we discussed in that previous episode. Waste is one of the tenets that gets the most attention outside of the primary two, with both legislation and funding directed towards waste of all kinds. This includes providing better programs and regulations for food and organic waste, and researching more avenues for methane from manure. Finally, Iceland will be taking action to phase out HFC cooling chemicals, which are the modern replacement for CFCs, but still very impactful on the environment and climate. They've also included goals to reduce fertilizer use, which has a ton of impacts on not only climate, but the environment, which we have also talked about on this show before. 
And that pretty much sums up the Climate Action Plan. There's quite a bit in there and it highlights the various sectors that are involved in mitigating climate change. Emphasizing the importance of going through our global energy transition ASAP so that we still have time to deal with all these ancillary sectors as well. Quick side note, we found out after writing this section that Iceland actually released an updated version of the climate plan in 2020, but broadly the report is the same. It's functionally the updated version of the plan that I just went over, so before we take a look at Iceland's energy policy, I'll run through the updates that have been made since 2018. In the transportation section of the report, they've also added in explicit sections on a low emission transition in heavy transport, rental cars, and state-owned vehicles. This was something that was clearly intended from the first report, but it expanded the categories somewhat to include each sector explicitly. The same approach was used for the agriculture sector, adding actions to transition to carbon-neutral beef, increasing vegetable production, and improving feed for climate by reducing enteric fermentation. As for the more miscellaneous actions, Iceland has put more emphasis on CCS by adding in actions for carbon capture implementation on both industrial plants and geothermal energy facilities. The second one was a bit of a surprise to me, as emissions from geothermal energy plants are insignificant compared to that of fossil fuel plants. That said, some emissions do come from geothermal sources, mostly from the steam and gases that are released through geothermal energy extraction. Implementation of CCS also gives them an opportunity to demonstrate the carb fix process, which may be just as important as the systems themselves in this case. On top of that, they've added an objective specifically for reducing the carbon impact of the construction sector, which they haven't mentioned before. It's a good idea, too, because there are significant emissions that come from construction, including emissions from heavy machinery and especially the use of concrete which we have a whole episode on at the beginning of Season 2. On the policy side of things, Iceland established goals for better climate strategy for government offices, as well as more climate impact assessments for upcoming legislation and sustainable public procurement. All three of these mostly address the direct actions of government bodies and addresses the carbon impact of the government itself. And finally, to accompany the promise of beginning larger scale and better regulated carbon credit systems, they've also added a goal to offer the Icelandic public green bonds, giving citizens a way to secure their money in environmentally sustainable investments, which I think is really cool personally, and a rare example of money actually working for climate instead of against it. So time to move on and take a look at their three-decade energy policy. This was a fairly long document, it will be in the show notes if you want to read through it yourself, as I've tried to cut it down to the basics as much as possible to keep the pacing of this episode tolerable. But I think it's worth going over at least the main points to get a grasp of where Iceland is going from here. First off, there's a short list of a couple of things that Iceland would like to fix in the years between 2020 and 2050. This includes fossil fuels in transportation, limited efficiency, more infrastructure needed, discord regarding development and benefits, unequal access to energy in infrastructure, and uncertain energy supplies. Hopefully what follows in the rest of the report will flesh out how exactly these problems will be solved. There are 12 explicit objectives given for the state of Icelandic energy. I'm not going to list them all, but they pretty much amount to safe, reliable, efficient, and diverse energy sources that eliminate the need for fossil fuels, 
equity and prosperity for all Icelanders and the pursuit of such values on the global scale, and consideration given for nature conservation and restoration. Each of the 12 objectives are expanded on, so I'll summarize each using each of the general headings I just listed. In the infrastructure and energy source section, Iceland once again puts an emphasis on reliability and versatility, reinforcing the objective to diversify both energy sources and industry, and to have the planning and foresight required to ensure a balanced energy market while navigating changing industries and energy demands. There are also a couple of pieces in there to account for climate impacts and ensure resilient infrastructure that can adapt to a changing climate as well, ensuring no disruption of energy sources. The document then put forth some goals for transmission infrastructure, setting goals for higher capacity transmission to more places in order to encourage sustainable development and also boost resiliency. Once again, this section is set out to ensure that the energy system can adapt to future changes such as the implementation of emissions-free transport. That's because the implementation of such transportation systems would require massive changes to transmission systems. Similarly, the need for adequate renewable energy storage technologies is also included for the sake of resilience and future planning. As mentioned, Iceland is also looking to promote diversification of their energy systems by using alternative methods of geothermal extraction, implementing more wind generation, and establishing themselves as a global leader in emissions-free fuels like hydrogen. This objective slots in nicely with what is their most detailed goal, which is the complete phase-out of fossil fuel transportation, which we've already talked about. Finally, there are a couple of energy-related points that talk about using energy-efficient technologies and systems, incentivizing efficient appliances in homes and businesses, minimizing energy losses and waste in the energy system itself, and maximizing the yield of the energy systems by using byproducts of certain systems in other useful ways. This is done primarily through combined heat and energy generation at geothermal energy plants, and by directing waste heat from industrial processes like aluminum production to other useful sectors like plant growing, biotechnology sectors, and paper production facilities. On the more societal side of the energy policy, it's all about equity. Communities all over Iceland should be given equal opportunity for both energy production and use. This is of course dependent on their unique geological location, and each community should reap the benefits of abundant renewable energy sources, whether it be through local businesses, good energy prices, value-creating industries, or tax incentives. To support those more general goals, Iceland has put forth an objective to maintain a healthy energy economy through a diversification of resources between local producers and large-scale plants. This should be done while maintaining strong regulation and support from government bodies in order to keep the system running smoothly and basically means that the government needs to balance any new generation coming online with all of the energy generation already in place. Finally, both of these objectives are supported by the promise to ensure equitable access to energy and heat by subsidizing and reducing the cost of energy transmission to outlying areas. This gives rural and small-town communities the same energy advantages as enjoyed in larger centers like Reykjavik. The final objectives are encompassed by the desire to protect and serve the natural world. 
These goals include careful consideration of site planning for energy infrastructure, including production facilities and transmission systems, which can both have large impacts on environmental health. The plan promises the absolute minimization of both environmental and climate impact from building any new infrastructure. A section is added to emphasize the importance of continued monitoring and regulation concerning the development of new industries, especially emissions-free fuels. These have large energy and feedstock requirements that can create an imbalance in the economy, the energy market, and the environment, and as such need to be heavily regulated. That takes us to the end of those 12 objectives. As I said, it's pretty heavily trimmed in order to fit into a somewhat reasonable time frame. The energy policy concludes by elaborating on its core principles. This section basically says, in a lot more words, that they want to guide decision-making processes by using principles of sustainable development and environmental protection while ensuring the growth of the Icelandic economy and guaranteeing the well-being of all of its people. This section also reiterates the importance of communication and cooperation, sharing information, technology, and funding between organizations, corporations, and the government in order to streamline the actions of all. The report ends with a short section on harmonization, which states the importance of pursuing these goals as a united front, leading by example from the head of the government all the way down, and providing the public with sufficient avenues for their opinions to be heard as well. All very noble goals. Good stuff. This policy was a pretty interesting read, even though it largely laid out general goals rather than explicit strategies or targets, it's a great trajectory as long as the country can follow through on all of these policies. Considering their reputation in the sector, I have no doubts that they can. With all of that in mind, I asked Kama what Iceland should be doing to further their climate agenda and what they're doing now. So let's see if she has any other ideas to touch on before we move on here. There are some areas where we're still tackling, like most of our emissions at the moment come from transportation. So a, a systematic uh, change that is being made is implementing a bus rapid transit system in Reykjavik so that people will use like very fast buses that run on green fuels rather than private cars. Another one which I think is very important and often overlooked is uh, when it comes to handling waste responsibly. One of the changes that are being looked at and I think will be implemented soon is just having the same system for recycling in every part of the country. One of the companies that I found very inspiring that did it at a smaller scale is a Pure North Recycling. Pure North Recycling is a company that recycles plastic locally using geothermal water, so not with any chemicals or anything, just using the very hot water. And then they use the plastic again within Iceland. So in, there are some sectors where you do need to use plastic, but they've created like a very small circular economy way of using it. And I think this sort of thing, these initiatives that come from some of our largest innovative companies are just coming from people that, that are thinking outside the box. They're, they're not limited by the fact that they're just an employee. They're thinking, I think my company should make better use of plastics. And then they, they start like a spin-off company together across many different pioneers. Another thing that I'm 
quite excited about is this carbon capture and storage. Whether you utilize the carbon again, or if you just store it and sort of get rid of it <laughs> for future generations, this, I believe, is becoming a new industry. That's just incredible. Thank you, Kama, for summing up so perfectly the main points that Iceland is looking to develop. That last bit about carbon capture is in reference to the R&D being done on CCS Technologies, who is actually one of the leading developers of this technology worldwide. This is mostly thanks to the CarbFix process, which we discussed in depth in the geothermal episode. Importantly, and quite impressively, on top of all of the ongoing projects to promote sustainability, Iceland is also making room to develop new technologies and continue pushing renewable energy and green tech forwards. With abundant, cheap, and clean natural sources, industries with high energy demand have began moving in, and so have research groups who want to work with the high-density electric renewable energy available. All of this is further incentivized by the ability to collaborate with the seemingly unstoppable inventive force of Icelandic mines. One of the projects being worked on is deep geothermal drilling, engineering brand new technologies and techniques that can be used to access even deeper geothermal resources for renewable energy development. I want to preface this section by saying I don't fully understand this part, so if you do, please correct me, but I think I got the gist of it. The Iceland Deep Drilling Project, aka IDDP, is basically a research project designed to test whether or not humans have the technology necessary to drill deeper into the ground than we ever have for the purposes of geothermal extraction. This project involves drilling into what is called supercritical conditions, which basically means that the water present is so hot it should be boiling, but because it's under so much pressure it can't, creating a supercritical fluid. A supercritical fluid is like the zombified child of gas and liquid, and very dangerous and hard on equipment. Long story short, the project is ongoing, but a couple of tests have been completed, proving that drilling into supercritical conditions, literally more than 4 kilometers straight down, is possible. But there are still ongoing tests to determine whether or not it's actually possible to extract the water necessary for geothermal energy production. This is one area that I highly recommend you do a bit of research on yourself. I've put one article in the show notes, but do a bit of digging. Even though I only understand about half of what I read about it, the implications are massive, and the capabilities of the technology is very impressive. And that's not the only place that Iceland is continuing to innovate in renewable energy. That was just recently in the parliament. The master plan was uh, re revisited, and uh, so wind is going to happen for us on a large scale is about maybe close to 100 megawatts. And then other hydro options, which are really optimizing existing rivers that are already tamed by uh, reservoirs, that they can add uh, uh, hydropower plants into the existing river like uh, areas. With big plans for more energy development, from new wind resources to deep drilling geothermal projects, and more research into run-of-river hydropower sources, it seems clear that the energy capacity of the country will only continue to grow, giving more opportunity for energy-intensive industry and leading the charge in demonstrating renewable energy sources. With all of these energy resources and more research on energy being done all the time, it invites innovation in other spaces. 
One thing that Kama mentioned that I hadn't even heard about before our conversation was aviation. I'll let her introduce you. Then we're seeing uh, Iceland Air is testing electrical flights now for domestic aviation. They just did last week the inaugural flight with uh, the prime minister and the president. So, so you have people really believing it'll work, and it did. <laughs> And they're going to even teach uh, pilots that are starting to train now with Iceland Air. They're going to teach them how to fly an electrical plane as part of the program for all pilots. Because the plan is to switch over to green fuels by 2030 for domestic aviation. And they're also testing. I I don't think they've started the actual flights, but they are planning to, to test hydrogen, green hydrogen as a fuel for aviation as well. And then they will be producing sustainable aviation fuels with the Landsvirkin, the national power company. So we have this sort of new sector, which is transportation, like all the difficult things, transportation, like the the new fuels that we're talking about, like hydrogen and methanol, methane and stuff. It, it makes the most sense to make them with renewables. So it makes sense to to test them somewhere like Iceland. And we have a small market, so we can also test all the different technologies. And I think that this will help us become the first country to implement some of the technologies. If they are tested here, it'll be quite easy to continue to use them. Iceland Air sure did put its president and prime minister on the first electric flight in the country's history. And while it's difficult to find specifics on the collaboration between Iceland Air and the National Power Company, that's just because it's fairly early in the collaboration. It's definitely getting started. Both CEOs have said that this collaboration provides them with a good opportunity for decarbonization, as domestic flights are relatively short and there is abundant renewable energy around to fuel green aviation. In an interview with the World Climate Foundation, the CEO of the National Power Company, whose name I really wish I could pronounce, but I just can't, said that the power company is committed to future projects in the field of green fuels. This includes electric aviation and e-fuels such as hydrogen for a variety of uses, including flight. On top of that, Iceland is planning to establish themselves as one of the initial exporters of such e-fuels because they have abundant access to renewables. The wind farms currently in the planning phase are a key component of the plan as they would largely be used for the development of these fuels, while the existing energy infrastructure will support the needs of the Icelandic people and the various other industries already present. Iceland Air has also already signed a few letters of intent with companies intending to work on decarbonizing domestic air travel. This includes Hart Aerospace and Universal Hydrogen. So there's all this stuff happening in Iceland all the time, and it's so exciting that maybe you can see now why I wanted to make an entire season about this amazing country. They have succeeded and continue to succeed in so many innovator endeavors that it's definitely worth appreciating. But it's not only in their energy and technological systems that Iceland has found itself leading. Quality of life in Iceland is among the highest in the world. That statistic comes at least in part due to the many benefits of their geography, but also from the social structures that have been established through years of progressive policymaking and forward thinking by those in power. It definitely helps that Iceland is a stunning country to look at, 
and the abundant energy that comes cheap and clean makes for a solid place to live. That said, the nation also takes care of its own and works hard to promote inclusion, equity, and social sustainability. From the way these native Icelanders talk about their country, it sounds like a close-knit community, one that takes care of each other and the world around them. Kama made some great points about this in our conversation and said it much better than I ever could, so I'll let her elaborate. When we talk about sustainability, we're talking about the environment, but we're also talking about uh, economics and social sustainability. When you look at Iceland, I think another area where we are really leading the way is uh, gender equality and respect for the LGBTQ community. uh, This inherent respect for people, that people are created equal and should have equal rights and live together in harmony. It sounds very cliche in English, (laughs) but, 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 uh, but that's definitely one of the things that matter. It's not enough to have renewable energy. You also need to have a society that respects everyone and allows people to be as they are and live in equality. We were one of, I think, the first country to allow gay marriage, gay adoption. And I think this this thought that everyone should have the same rights, it's less controversial. The difference in opinion, they aren't as extreme because you have this inherent respect for different people and, and therefore for different opinions. And I think that's something that's very important. Mostly it's the same issue. It's respect. You have respect for nature. You have respect for people. You have respect for each other and the environment. You need to have have that. That's the foundation for it all to work out sustainably. An ideal society would be a society where everyone has their needs met without taking more from nature than it can give. I'm not sure whether whether the way there is to need less or to find a better way of using the resources. (laughs) When we started to use electricity and we produced it renewably, that meant that we we could continue to use it. (laughs) We, We don't always think about what renewable actually means, but you can use renewable energy in a sustainable way, but you can also deplete the resource and use it unsustainably. So what we've done very well is to use it sustainably and let many different generations use the same resource. I think it is the social fabric that uh, people just take that as one of the qualities of life, to have the social fabric, be part of your family, be a part of the, of the, of the village. There's so much that the rest of the world can learn from Iceland, and I hope that this season has given you an idea of some of the most prominent aspects of Iceland that the rest of the world ought to adapt ASAP in the coming years. Funnily enough, Icelanders hold much the same opinion, and I don't blame them in the least. National pride is strong in Iceland, that much was clear from the conversations that I had, and that isn't limited to the citizens. It shouldn't surprise you that much to know that Iceland is not only leading in domestic climate policies, but have taken quite a vocal leadership role on the global stage of climate action. As mentioned in this season multiple times by now, Iceland was one of the pioneers of large-scale geothermal energy, and their continued development of such energy sources have made their expertise a worldwide commodity. Stefan put it like this. 
I think the, the, the most important contribution for Iceland when it comes to to energy and, and, and addressing these issues uh, globally would be in the field of geothermal energy and, and our experience with house heating. We have companies and we have specialists who have served as advisors all over the, the world because, interestingly, there are quite, you know, populous places all over the world and, you know, even in, in, in mainland uh, Europe which has access to geothermal energy, not the same temperature as, 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 as we do, but, but still something that can easily be used uh, for, for house heating instead of uh, using imported gas, uh, you know, which is becoming all the more controversial recently. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that it's in this field with geologists and, and specialists in this kind of energy harnessing that, that we can contribute the most. Not many nations will find themselves in the same situation as Icelanders to be a tiny population on a huge island with loads of un- unharnessed waterfalls, but hot water can be found on pretty many places. Aside from the geothermal experts who find their start and their experience working with the country of Iceland, Iceland also runs a geothermal energy training program. This program was initially named the UN University Geothermal Training Program, but has since been renamed to be the GROW Geothermal Training Program, hosted by Iceland Geosurvey. The program's objective is to teach about geothermal energy. What are the geographical requirements? How can you ensure that a location has the right attributes? And how is geothermal energy best used once it's up and running? All of these questions and more are focused on by these courses, which are led by experts in the field and often customized for the geography of the participants. This gives the best chances of success for geothermal projects to whoever wants to get involved. It's honestly a pretty amazing program and something that I'm personally interested in, so check it out in the show notes. At COP27 in 2022, Iceland made an announcement to the International Conference reinforcing the importance of the 1.5 degrees Celsius limitation. It also emphasized that the majority of countries' climate goals simply weren't adequate to meet the actual goals of the Paris Agreement. To drive their point home, Iceland banned all oil exploration in the Icelandic economic zone. About a year before that, at COP26, Iceland made a very visible statement by pledging 1.2 million US dollars equivalent to the climate promise by UNDP. They also encouraged other countries to do the same by doing so. In doing so, Iceland joined countries including the EU, Germany, and Sweden in funding sustainable development and climate action in countries where money is one of the main factors limiting widespread climate action. According to the Icelandic officials who made the announcement, this is the start of an ongoing policy to contribute to international sustainable development and support developing and industrializing countries in any way possible as each nation navigates the challenges and impacts of climate change in the future. And then of course there is the technology that we've already discussed which is being pioneered and demonstrated in Iceland. Both Grimur and Kama had some really good points to sum up on this final point for the Icelandic impact, so here they are. I mean, Icelandic companies are taking part in projects all around the world in 
hydropower and geothermal energy, uh, even power transmission systems. Now we have a new sector, which is carbon capture, utilization and storage. So we have both a very a pioneer in uh, carbon capture that is then utilized to produce methanol, which is Carbon Recycling International. And then we have a new type of uh, storing carbon, which accelerates the natural process in stone specifically, which is the carb fix process. So we have these, I, I wouldn't say sci-fi <laughs> uh, solutions that we've developed here that we're also seeing a very much interest in. And I think that we export the renewable energy expertise and then also these new green solutions that are uh, being pioneered here. When we do so, we have an outsized impact on the battle against climate change. I feel that the expertise here is, is as good as everywhere else in the world, so we can take part in uh, geothermal projects worldwide. The Iceland uh, geothermal community has been kind of tight standing so and sharing. So there are already uh, two what is called Iceland deep drilling project wells that were drilled into very, very high temperatures. Now we are talking about five, 600 Celsius even, or even a molten lava in the north. The industry here is trying to go deeper. And whoever will succeed in that endeavor will really, really uh, make geothermal into a global resource. Because everywhere, if you have the technology and the money to drill very deep, let's say five to 10 kilometers, then you get into very high temperatures and then uh, geothermal can fly. Uh, small Iceland at least has drilled uh, two of these very hot wells and is part of developing the, uh, that uh, volume of rock into a resource. I feel that uh, success might be the, the most uh, valuable like a sharing part, that testimony, exhibit number one, I mean, uh, this is working. So you can't do it, and a very small nation with uh, not too many resources was able to do it. So why not the rest of the world? So that is maybe signal number one. We can do it. Uh, we can sequest CO2 into minerals, and we can drill deep wells into very hot rocks, and that looks impossible before you start. And so we've come full circle, to an extent. Iceland has much to offer the world in terms of technology, expertise, and leadership. But perhaps the greatest asset as a global climate leader is their success in making the transition. So with all of that said, we've pretty much made it to the end of the Iceland story. We're up to date in the modern day, and Iceland is doing their absolute best to drag the rest of the world towards meaningful climate action. With any luck, we will see the fruits of their labor in the coming decades. Before we wrap up this episode and functionally this season, I asked the Icelanders I talked to about how we should solve climate change. So to drag this out a little bit more, let's talk solutions. Since I've already talked about solutions numerous, numerous times on this show, I've put together an audio collage, if you will, of some of the solutions proposed by my amazing guests. Let's start there. We're seeing things that were supposed to happen in 50 or 100 years, and it's, it's only 10, 10 or 20 years since. So the timeline has just shortened so much. The impact is much larger right now. And this whole idea that we don't have time, it's very true. We have to do what we can do now because scientists are not marketing people. 
So whatever the IPCC is sending out, it really is 100% going to happen or, you know, 99.99%. I'm not a scientist, as you can tell, <laughs> with, with my game of percentages. So it's the, the problem is that they are, if anything, they're understating what will happen and when. I think that's a very important factor that at first people were in some sort of denial. Then they were thinking, oh, but it's there's nothing we can do about it. And now, at least here in Iceland, I feel people are really coming together in this uh, mindset of everything counts. Like, I'll do something on, at an individual level. I'll try to get my business to do something. And also, because tourism is quite important in Iceland, and some of the effects, uh, like glaciers melting, they're very visual. And if you have people going there to look at them or even to hike on them, to see them, then you have a much larger part of the population that experiences them personally. I think that also has an effect. I think think one of the most important things we can do, you know, for the environment and to, to uh, educate people is to build up science centers. Science centers create scientists, they create uh, the entrepreneurs of the futures and encourage them to uh, go into this field. Probably it's politically very challenging, but I think the world needs to agree that uh, we are putting too much uh, CO2 into the atmosphere, so it should be taxed. Then you can make that tax into incentives for renewable energy. So make uh, the fossil the fuel more expensive than renewable. That is the solution. Invite people from developing countries, which have very few opportunities, to come to a developed, like a geothermal country, and just see how to do this. Because then they will go home, and education is a resource that grows when you use it. So, so I feel that uh, this is a, has been very, very helpful in many, many developing countries. I am impatient that uh, I find the energy like a change so much of an opportunity and excitement and fun that we should be doing much more so i i i wonder every day why are we moving so slow and i think it has to do with if it works don't fix it so so the the world is run with the older generation and it's reluctant to to adapt for new technologies and new solutions in the renewable energies so maybe my message is to you and the young people that may listen to this interview is that look around yourself, see what you can do. I also feel that uh, there are, especially in colder or hotter countries, that look at heat pumps and go into what is called ground-based heat pumps or you drill a shallow well next to your house. And certainly you have energy independence. Most of the energy that you need for either heating or cooling your house, you can take from the ground underneath your house. Let's together change our habits and how we live, do that energy transition without much pain. I think it is going to be even fun. I think it's all about getting to know nature. So no matter where you are in the world, there will be some nature close to you. If it's possible, I would recommend trying to do field trips with children, with young children. Getting them involved when they're young is essential. Like I'm learning so much from my children about nature and sustainability and you know going to the beach is very different with with a three-year-old <laughs> than it is with grown-ups like everything is amazing but for the places where you 
where it isn't feasible. Like if you don't have a mountain or a forest or a beach or land, just regular, you know, fields. If it's just absolutely impossible to bring the group to some sort of nature, you can bring nature in. You can do simple things like a grow a sunflower, tomatoes or something. You, you create a connection with nature also with plants. It's also, I, I don't know if, if you've heard of this, but Icelandic people are very ready to try something new, but they're also, they, they're not afraid that it won't work out. They just figure it will probably work out. And if something goes wrong, we'll find our way around it. This sort of, I don't know, positive grit. I think that's, that's essential if you're going to do something like change the system. Use your resources wisely. Use them again and again and again. I, I would just like to add that anytime we're working in the climate sector, what's most important is collaboration. No single country will figure this out on its own. And it's not enough to think about the local emissions. It has to be a collaborative effort across the world. There's not a ton that I can add to that. That is the story of Iceland. Take bold action, and if it doesn't work out, we will figure it out. The world needs more of that in our fight against climate change. If you would allow me, before the end of this episode, I have a few statements of my own, for the sake of climate and countries all across the world who will feel the impacts of climate change if we do nothing. Climate change is here. There is no more waiting around. There are no more century-long timelines. We have dug ourselves into a hole, and it's already filling up fast. It won't be too long before there simply isn't a way out. Climate change is not only happening, but it's happening much sooner than most people thought, and the rate at which we're seeing its impacts is still accelerating. If you're listening to this podcast, and I genuinely mean this, it means that you're part of a global community who care about climate change and want to do something. As part of that community, I would call on you to actually do it. If you've been listening for a while, you know the things that I preach. Talk about climate change. Everyone and everything, the good and the bad. We need to talk about it because as much as climate change is now a globally recognized issue, there's still not enough awareness or transparency. Make good climate decisions. With your vote and with your wallet, think climate. Electrify what you can, when it makes sense to do so, and support companies and political parties who hold the same values as you. Not only privately, but publicly. Use your voice and bring others into this movement. We need every person that we can get. Get organized. Write to your representatives. Make it clear it's climate first or nothing. Especially if you're in the States, your action is greatly needed. The Willow Project is a massive oil and gas industrialization project that was approved by the Biden administration in March of 2023. I've put a couple links to this specifically in the show notes. If this project is taken to completion, it would be an almost comedically disastrous step backwards in the fight against climate change. I don't mean to overstate, but I genuinely think that's pretty hard to do when considering the sheer denial that accompanies approving a project like this. The completion of this project could very well mean failure for the climate movement. Personally, I will be keeping close track of this project and doing everything in my power to stop it, so I hope you will do the same. 
These kind of misguided and sometimes seemingly completely blind decisions are being made all over the world, all the time. It's our responsibility to stop it and ensure that our planet and our species can not only survive, but prosper for many more years than what is currently a pretty bleak outlook. We can do this. It isn't hopeless, and I don't think it ever will be hopeless. So we have to act now and act quickly. That requires you too. Every month, every year that goes by with inadequate action makes it harder and harder for us to find success in mitigating climate change. Don't ever let it become hopeless. We need unity, we need everyone, and we need action. Yeah, I just want to wanted to encourage you to to come over here one day to to visit Iceland and do not forget your swimming trunks because you need to go to the swimming pools, not to the fancy lagoons and spas that are used to attract the tourists and cost a fortune, but just to go to the regular swimming pools that you will find in every town and every village in this country, no matter how small it is, because in, in, in many ways, the Local swimming pool is the most important social institute in, in, in each uh, community here in this, this country. And we always welcome visitors there uh, very, very fondly. That is it. It's hard to believe that this is how far we've come on this show. First things first, another big thank you to Kama, Grimur, and Stefan for being featured on the show. And a thank you to Green by Iceland once again. You guys made this show possible, and I truly cannot thank you enough. I want to extend that thank you to all of the guests who have been featured on this show. You've inspired me and so many others, and you really have changed my life. I need to thank my small team that made this show possible over the years. I'm pretty proud of the work we've done. I finally want to send you a genuine thank you for listening and supporting the show. This is my passion, and I have absolutely loved every second of it. I hope you got something out of it. As for the future, there are no guarantees. If you haven't figured it out by now, I'm pretty important to the show as it is, and it has taken this long for this season to come out because I'm pursuing a degree in sustainable energy engineering, and it takes a lot of time to put together a season like this. That's time I simply don't have as much of anymore. I would like to be able to say that episodes will come out occasionally, but I really just don't know. So hope for the best, I guess, but don't count on anything soon. On the other hand, we've really just scratched the surface of content for the show, and I'm currently on the hunt for a new host to take the show wherever it goes next. If you're interested in being that person, please go to our social media in the show notes and the email that's linked there. It's likely that the website for the show will come down sometime in the next year, so to keep up with any updates, use our social medias. Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn all work, and use the join the team email that I've linked in the show notes. I hope you've enjoyed this show because I've thoroughly enjoyed bringing it to you. Thank you again. Stay innovative. I'll see you sometime. <laughs>